Welcome back to Cyber Context, the podcast featuring Jonathan Moore, Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak. I'm Christian Whiten. Jonathan, uh, you know, we talk a, a lot about space, and I know you work a lot with space, satellites, software, uh, everything like that. But there seems to be um, not a lot of clarity on where things are going in space. It seems like everyone knows that space is, uh, we're sort of in the midst of a second space race. It's coming back. It's not just putting men in capsules and lower orbit, but that's so much of our daily life communications, business, uh, data storage, transportation, everything uh, moving increasingly to space and these immense um, constellations of of satellites going into space, uh, much simpler, kind of, I think you've described them before as uh, a floating uh, or an orbiting Linux server. I'm not going to put words in your mouth there. But um, if we talk about where, uh, where we're going with this, maybe the best places to start with where we have been. Um, you know, the U.S. government putting up spy satellites, uh, starting with film, film that was actually deorbited, dropped, caught by a, a, a C-130 so it didn't um, fall into the wrong hands, taken to, I think it was Eastman Kodak and was it Connecticut, upstate New York, developed and handed back to the government. Uh, come a long way from that, but it wasn't until recently, actually, that that government-centric, government-dominated uh, method of using satellites was was the norm. Am I right? Is that um, what's been the status quo for the last several decades until the last five, 10 years? Well, I think in a lot of ways, you're right. You know, and I, I even want to hit on one point you did that it's that, that really everything depends on space today, right? We depend on, you know, uh, remote sensing from space to manage precision agriculture. We depend on GPSs to drive those same tractors. You know, the logistic systems that get products through our doors and their stores are dependent on space. And increasingly, communication is dependent on space as well. So, like, I think absolutely right is you can't separate space out from modern society in the same way that you can't separate out communications technology and the Internet and computers. So I think we've really stepped into a place in society where we're incredibly dependent on space and communications technologies. Um, uh, and their overlap um, without really even solving some of the fundamental problems that we have in all these groups in terms of uh, making sure uh, that they're safe and making sure that they're secure and that we can rely on them and, and business will go on as usual. I mean, just to, to the point one, we've, we saw how even small disruptions and small events can have ripple impacts on the supply chains and how we've really built a very fragile and world. That's dependent on figuring out how to secure that. Yeah, you know, after that sort of little you know, soap soapbox speech, agreeing with you, um, <laughs> um, I think yeah. So space, until very recently, has been dominated by the government market. I mean, and 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 it still is. I mean, let's be clear: the biggest customer for almost for any uh, you know space company in the U.S. is the U.S. government, and that's going to continue to be true for a while. Um, but historically, also, there have been commercial companies. There have been, you know, uh, commercial communication satellites in GEO and, uh, you know, a handful of semi-state Earth observation companies. I think it's, you know, the, the line. To, and I think that's that's a lot of the change, too, is that even historically, the commercial companies had a blurred line with the state actors. You know, you look at, I don't know the history of some of the GEO companies, but, you know, you look at like Iridium. and 
I don't know what hand the government had in Iridium's original, original incarnation, but when that company failed, um, and just before the satellites were going to be deorbited, um, InQtel stepped in to become a major shareholder in Iridium and keep it afloat. You know, you look at um, uh, GOI, which was provided the first high resolution, you know, some of the first very high resolution commercial um, satellite imagery. And a lot of their technology was supplied through the government, as I understand. And they had, you know, the government had first dibs on, you know, satellite time in certain geographic regions, um, which, you know, amusingly ended up being a really bad deal for some Middle Eastern countries that invested in, uh, you know, a next generation GOI satellite. Uh, and then the Gulf War happened and they got zero access to that instrument uh, for years. Uh, that they'd invested quite heavily in because the U.S. government had first dibs. So, so anyway, we see these kind of things where if it historically, if it wasn't a government asset, it was kind of a little bit of a hybrid government commercial asset. And, and I'm sure you can find like counterexamples and like probably TV relays and things like that. But the government presence was heavily there. And also essentially since, you know, for the last, you know, 40 years until very recently, if you look at every lift vehicle, every launch vehicle to put payloads into space, they were all based on ICBMs, you know, that, you know, we were in a government, in a, sorry, in an environment where the government and space weren't really separable. Um, and so what we've seen um, over the last 15 years or so, maybe even 10 to be, to be more honest, is this transition to a commercial space era. And then where these commercial companies certainly get a lot of their revenue for government contracts, they weren't, they didn't, they don't exist because they answered an RFP, right? They didn't, they don't, they didn't answer the government's request to build something. They went to venture capitalists and they said, we think there's a business opportunity here. Here's our business plan. Give us money to do this. And these are companies like SpaceX and Spire and Planet Labs and Black Sky, and, you know, a whole whole list of these. I mean, and, and you know what, I, I, I don't know the history of every single one of them, and you might be able to find that, oh, well, maybe Black Spy did, Sky did have some government hands in the beginning. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not asserting that. I'm just saying I don't know. Um, but I do know about companies like SpaceX and Spire and Planet Labs, and they're all commercial companies. I mean, of course, a lot of the people there come from government backgrounds, because that's what where that's the story that if you wanted to be in aerospace or in in orbit um prior to that and that's what your interest is you were going to work for the government and so you knew that um so we have seen that transition and now you know just absolutely dominating the launch market is spacex for instance right and they're a commercial launch provider that built their vehicle purpose-built to put you know payloads into space not to deliver warheads um you know and Maybe that's why they're one of the first people to care about reusability. You don't really care about reusability. Um, <laughs> no. um, After Armageddon, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you yeah. Not, don't so worry, care about reusability for, for ICBMs. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, we see other ones like Rocket Lab, and we see the up-and-comings like Astra and Firefly. And this is a radically new environment. And it's had a huge commercial impact. Like, in the era of you know, the space shuttle, you were talking something like 60,000 kilograms, um, 
to put some sorry, sixty thousand dollars to put a kilogram into orbit. Um, and Falcon Nine quickly brought that to thirty thousand. And now we're seeing in rideshare missions and and some of these new things, we're starting. We're seeing sub ten thousand, even pushing on a thousand dollars a kilogram. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we expect in the coming years that to get to below a thousand dollars a kilogram. And so that's you know orders of magnitude less expensive, right? But it's not even that. Is you know you you know seven years ago, if you had a great idea for a space mission and even in low Earth orbit, which is the easiest place to access, and you're like, all right, I've got the money for my you know sixty million dollar launch, and you go to the launch provider and they'll say, great, we'll get you there in twenty four to thirty six months, right? Today, you can go to a um, launch provider that works, that, that's an intermediary with a company like SpaceX, and you can end up on orbit in three to six months. You know, so we've seen not just a, a drastic collapse in the price, but a huge shortening of timelines that have allowed, you know, you know, entirely different opportunities. Because I mean, what, like, what is, you know, why has that changed the world? Well, one, it means that it's a lot less expensive to try things out. So a lot more things are worth trying. And two, the amount of time you're going to lock up your capital and, exp- and expose yourself to changes in the market is now drastically shorter. You're not betting this will still be an interesting business proposition in 36 months. You're saying, or even because you got to build the satellite first historically. So probably more like, you know, 36 to, to whatever, 48 months or whatever it is. You're now, you're now you're saying like, well, actually, no, we can we can test this idea in twelve months if we want to, you know, and you can get to the same kind of, you know, product cycles that you see in internet startups, you know, not maybe not quite there, but but really close. So it's a very different market for businesses to invest in, and also for the government. The government is now realizing these same capabilities because at the same time we've seen this transition to this commercial space and rapid increase in access in terms of cadence and cost. We've also seen space clearly transition to a contested regime and ASAT weapons being deployed by more and more countries. And, you know, those keyhole satellites are amazing, right? You know, we we know from various leaks and things that, you know, they're able to image, you know, with a resolution of five centimeters from whatever, 300 something uh, uh, kilometers or a thousand kilometers. Um, No, a hundred kilometers or whatever it is. Numbers aren't my forte, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I mean that's what the computers are for, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, but those are you know cost billions of dollars to build and launch, and so you can't put too many of them up. And a single, if a single ASAT weapon can take it out, you just lost that capability. So even the government's interested in like, well, what if we had more things that were cheaper and we could rapidly deploy them? That's why you see. There's a lot of money around um, deploying, uh, you know, rapid redeployment where the government wants to go to a launch provider and say, we want you to launch the satellite in two weeks. So so that's the kind of transition we're seeing. When uh, you talk about that, that sort of interim period, you mentioned a company during the Gulf War, that's 1991. So that's well after the original space race and, and the first... Um, telecommunications and TV satellites went up and I, you know, obviously the very first in the fifties, but mostly sixties, seventies, eighties. 
Um, if, if you're in a hybrid company there, so you're not uh, a Pentagon instrumentality or private company, but your, your primary customer is the U.S. government, um, is everyone in your control room uh, uh, holding a security clearance from the government? Are you receiving classified taskings? Or um, is, it, is it really just business and you're getting things that are not particularly secret from the government and you're providing a service? Maybe you don't even know what's, what's uh, coming and going. Or I'm just curious, how secure was that interim period? Because it seems like there's a desire now for more security. So I wonder if that period was marked by a lack of security. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think it varied across the market, but, you know, you know, the way traditionally tasking happened was you'd send a sec- an email on a secure network to somebody that would, uh, was employed by the company to read that email and then order the uh, imagery to be collected uh, internally in the company. And so it was very much about you know, hands on keyboards and people in the loop and clearances and and manual processes. And, you know, and that that was true also for like other parts of the operation of the satellite, even, you know, government satellites, you think like, oh, well, it's a satellite and it's automated and, you know, it goes over the ground station and the, the computer you knows it's time to go talk to the satellite. But that's not how it works in most of the traditional space market. The satellite's there and somebody goes to the terminal and they say, all right, point the antenna at this satellite and they turn a dial to set, you know, you know, virtually speaking to set, like the, they configure the radio and they, they run the pass manually and watch it. And it's, it's not automated. And you contrast that though, to how things are now in this new generation, right? Where, you know, at companies like planet, they have, you know, just a handful of nine to five operators who work nine to five jobs and they have a pager, but they, they're not, they're <laughs> only at their desk nine to five uh, in the, in the network operations center, which is really just another desk in, in the building, you know, and what their job is too, is to, to manage the plans and the health of the constellation, not even a single satellite. And the actual operation is all automated. And you compare that to, you know, go look at any, like the pictures of James Webb, you know, that just mm-hmm. launched when it's deployed, there's like a room of like 60 people sitting in front of, terminals and that they're doing that like 24 seven, you know? Right. Um, and so, but that doesn't scale, which is why when you look at companies like planet, which has hundreds of satellites and, and you look at SpaceX, which has thousands, they're all automated operations. Right. And that's the future as we want to scale up, as we move to this era of, you know, proliferated Leo or P Leo, we're talking inherently about an era of automation and not, and, and where people are, are, in the loop for planning, but not execution. Right. Uh, you mentioned secure email. Uh, I wouldn't have, having had some experience with government agencies, it wouldn't surprise me if that was actually just a secure fax well into <laughs> the 2000s. I, I won't argue that point. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, from a business point of view, I guess, are you not surprised that we have this flourishing of new companies in what was somewhat a, a mature seeming staid um, business with big names like AT and T, like Boeing, and now you have this mushrooming. That I don't think so because I think there's a lot of underserved markets, right? You know, there's a lot like, you know, you were talking before we started this call how you had to move out of somewhere because your only internet connectivity was DSL, and it just wasn't yeah. cutting it for the modern work world, <laughs> right. right? Most of the world 
doesn't have good internet connectivity, let alone most of the U.S., you know, and that it's only places with really high population concentrations where that you get to live in the modern world, right? I mean, I think, was it Neil Stevenson? Or I forget who it was, some sci-fi offer that said the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. So I think <laughs> even if you look at capabilities we're all used to, they're not they're not provided everywhere. And the great thing about about you know providing capabilities on orbit is where it's a very high overhead to get that the you know, to get your capability operational. Once it's there, you often have global coverage instantly with no on the ground infrastructure. Um, you know, you know, there's no way you're going to cert- you're going to provide high speed connectivity in the middle of the the pacific other than via space you know and there's no practical way you're going to put it you know in the middle of the mountains without without space as well so i think what you know we're seeing is there there are all sorts of opportunities which are not yet realized but they weren't realized cuz the it, it's not just that the business case didn't exist which is true in some cases so you know like advances information processing technology and and miniaturization have made a lot of things practical but also it wasn't feasible for a lot of them because the costs were so high so you know by being able to drive down those costs we've made what used to be infeasible business plans that wouldn't converge and only converge with government support you know like you know iridium being being propped up by the U.S. government to provide, you know, comms for probably, you know, intelligence and, and special operations. Um, you know, they couldn't exist without without state backing. And now the costs have dropped and they can. Jonathan, I'm curious about the role of encryption in this new space world. Um, particularly the ability to have satellites do things where it's not that sort of trusted person or group of people in a control room, whether it's government or the private sector, um, but uh, the ability to conceal, frankly, from a satellite operator what you are asking it to do, whether you're the government or whether you're just a private company, um, collecting imagery, collecting something you're sensing from space uh, or conducting communications that you just want to be completely private. Uh, encryption, from a mathematical point, my understanding, hasn't changed that much lately, but is it just a change in software that allows um, the operation of satellites to be, is it more compartmentalized, or is it just um, using encryption for everything that previously you wouldn't use encryption for? Well, let me first say that that, that encryption actually has changed a lot, it's basic. Mm. I mean, we actually just had NIST announce finalists for the post-quantum crypto comp- competition. And there have been a lot of advantages in zero-knowledge proofs and multi-party computation and uh, misuse-resistant crypto. Um, But none of those things are actually really what I think is driving the change you're talking about, um, which is that historically encryption has been something you use to protect data in transit and to protect it at rest. And by in transit, they mean to, you know, Put an armor plating on the pipe you're shoving your messages through but it's it's about the pipe and not the messages right um and and encryption at rest is about you know ensuring that if you know the the hard drive is lost or the laptop is lost while it's turned off 
that nobody will be able to access that data unless they know the password to type in when it boots up, presuming you use the high enough entropy passwords. Um, and so it's about very specific controls. Um, and there, the, the, the at rest one is, is, uh, is useful, but, but not all that interesting. And the one in transit is importantly, it's not, it's a, it's ephemera. It only secures the messages while they're on the wire, not when they're on either end of the, 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 the computer. So if my computer sends you a message to your computer, it's not encrypted on my computer before or after I send it. It's not encrypted on your computer after you receive it. It's just while it's on the network. And so I think the, the real change is instead of saying, well, we're doing this at the network level, right, or on the storage level, we're moving encryption to be applied at the application level. And we can use the same cryptographic primitives in terms of public key signature and symmetric encryption and pu public key encryption. We can take these same basic primitives that we've been using for a very long time, and we can apply them in directly to the application protocols to move the security controls to be implemented cryptographically. And a very easy, a simple version of this that's now become popular is end-to-end -end encryption. So with end-to-end -end encryption, if you use Signal or you use you know, WhatsApp or some of these other you know, messengers that use end-to-end -end encryption, when you send a message uh, to me over Signal that it's encrypted on your device, then sent to the Signal servers to store it for me until I go and pick it up, but it stays encrypted there. And the Signal organization can never read that message and then my device comes and goes hey do you have any messages for me gets the encrypted message that was never decrypted and isn't decrypted until it's on my device and that's opposed to say like an email provider which uses tls for encryption in transit and you know you take your message and it gets encrypted over that pipe but then you know google or microsoft or whoever it is uh, can read your message on the server and then when i ask for it I go ask for it, and they take it, and they put it over that encrypted pipe, and I get it. And so it's protected from network-level adversaries, but not from somebody who can operate in the who operates the infrastructure. So you're not protected from your email provider, where if you use end-to-end -end security, you are protected from your provi messaging provider. And that even though they're storing the message for you and giving backups for you and all these other kinds of things, you can't, uh, they're unable to actually know the contents of your messages. You get confidentiality from them. And that's the kind of thing where you have to move those controls into the application to get those properties, where you're able to apply the controls directly to the, the records at the application level and provide these much stronger protections and guarantees than you get with the traditional approach to cryptography. And that's the same change you're talking about in space. So traditionally, we would use uh, for, you know, well, very traditionally, we assumed that the radio hardware and hardware to talk to space was hard, and that was enough. That the, the, the access to the technology just to talk to a satellite at all was enough protection. And that fell away, and we needed to say, well, okay, everything needs to be, everything government needs to be encrypted, and everything started using type 1 encryptors, right? Um, but these are, again, just network link-level encryption. It says from this radio to that radio, it's protected. And nobody who can listen, snoop in on the signal can know what's going on but it's not protected at either end. And so if you send a message from, you know, the commander to mission control to the ground station to the satellite, every one of those hops, it's going to be decrypted and re-encrypted. And each of those is an exposure, you know. Um, so, you know, that that's sort of the, the thing. And it's it very much is the 90s IT era perimeter defense, you know, mm. 
And I think the challenge is, is for small numbers of devices with a lot of people watching them and a lot of operational security around them, that's probably a reasonable approach. Um, but we know for complex networks that are dynamic, like IT environments, that's incredibly, it's just not going to work, right? Those networks, you can't have real air gaps, that you can't really know what devices are on those networks or who to trust them. And that's even true in SCADA systems, like industrial control systems that we see in plants and, and, and factories. Um, we've seen that same problem. You know, we've seen that in air conditioners in large buildings. Like they end up being connected and connected to the, everything else in the building. So, you know, the, the, in these complex networks, you can't, you can't have that perimeter defense because your perimeter is too large. It's too hard to keep tight. And so as we're transitioning from this historical missions, the, you know, the traditional approach of you've got a satellite and it's got 30 people and these three ground stations are dedicated to the mission or high security. And you know exactly when you've got all these things and you can, everybody's watching everybody else and it's safe because you only hire good people and you do, you know, lifestyle polygraph tests or whatever you have to do on them. Right. You know, <laughs> You, you, you have, you've got a lot of assurance in that security, and it, it probably mostly works. But as soon as we say, well, now we're going to have hundreds of satellites, and maybe we want satellites owned by different operators talking directly to each other in space instead of having to, like, bounce to a ground station through a ground network and back up to space because they want to collaborate, because they're collaborating on a single mission, or because we need automatic, we want to apply some form of or maybe that's not the right camp, but we want to, you know, do satellite maintenance. You want a space tug that so you don't have to carry the fuel to insert yourself into orbit. You want to save payload mass um, and have more fuel for station keeping, you know, just maintaining your orbit. You have a tug that's going to pull you to your orbit from where this rocket inserts you into orbit around Earth. Or you maybe you even want to have uh, servicing where you refuel the satellite. Um, how are these various components that are operated and known by different vendors communicating with each other directly? And how are we securing that? And how are we doing that once we start talking about hundreds or thousands of satellites? You know, how is even the U.S. government going to do it once it's successfully deployed its transport layers? You know, we're currently in the process of deploying the transport layer, which is going to be the Internet at space for the U.S. government, where we have these 200 gigabit optical interconnects by a ring of satellites or several rings of satellites in orbit and then other satellites will talk to each other through that. And we're going to use that for our um, detect and trace missions for tracking hypersonic missiles, right? So where you see you have uh, a set of satellites responsible for detecting launches and a different set of satellites that are responsible for tracking those. And those need to, those are going to communicate through this transport layer and it all needs to be autonomous because you've got not enough time to like do the traditional thing, which is take an image, send it to an analyst who produces a data product that sends it to a commander who makes a warfighting decision with it, right? That's clearly not working if you're trying to track a hypersonic missile, right? So, you know, how are we going to, you know, so we're going we're gonna to do all this stuff, and that fundamentally doesn't fit in to the historical the model where you have perimeter defense, simple to either easy to understand complex things, and a dynamic change in environment of trust and devices. And so in the same way, that end-to-end -end security is sort of the, the great answer to, well, how do you build these dynamic and agile trust environments where you say you don't trust the infrastructure, you only trust exactly who has to be trusted? You know, if we're talking, and we, why should we trust anything but our devices? We shouldn't have to trust any other world's devices, um, not 
Facebooks, not Googles, not Signals, you know, um, not AT&Ts, right? Um, uh, so, so how are we going to do that same environment? And we're going to need to change the way we secure things. We're going to need to take humans out of the loop. It's going to be automated. We're going to need to talk about this dynamic change in environment. So we're going to need dynamic trust and agility in how we key and how we build compartments and how controls are enforced. So I think that kind of goes a little beyond the question you answered, but I think it gets to not just how things are changing, but why things are changing and why we have to move from security as a way to harden network links um, or connections to we need to think about using cryptography to do that, to cryptography to actually enforce properties of the protocol and the way various devices interact with each other. Right, and one simple or perhaps simplistic question um, as we move into this new world with, with you with old hardware we have with satellites that are actually in orbit, are they often designed so that you can update them to an extent that you could apply these these different practices or is it going to take a new generation of satellites? I mean I think yes and no on on that answer. So I think one, for sort of more interesting advanced capabilities, it will require new satellites. To start with, those mm -hmm. satellites only really know how to talk to the ground in almost every case. Um, so they don't aren't really going to be able to talk to other satellites with the hardware that's on them. Mm -hmm. um, those satellites almost certainly have the ability to update the software on them um, because they want to be able to correct from faults. It's very expensive to put a satellite in space, and it took a long time to do it. So if something goes wrong, you know, configuration of which software is a kind, is the only thing you have to fix it. You're not going to send... Well, I guess we did send a few people up uh, in the space shuttle to go service satellites on orbit, but that was largely seen as the, the wrong approach. Um, and maybe in the future, we'll have robots that can go service things, but um, we're not quite there yet. I mean, in some ways we are. There's some interesting missions that have flown, which is demonstrating near approach and things like that um, to other, other spacecraft. Um, but for the most part, everybody operates with the assumption that they can reconfigure their satellite and they're built for flexibility in their uh, architectures and you can employ new software. That said, nobody wants to change their software on a satellite if they absolutely don't have to. Because what if that change causes the satellite to not work and you lose that capability? You know, that's sort of the opposite of what you want. Um, and then the, you know, other, the other aspect that makes upgrading legacy satellites harder, not impossible, is that, you know, there's a strong tradition of heritage in space, right? Where you use things that you knew work before. And so, you know, the extreme cases that are things like when Hubble launched in 1989, it contained, I believe, in a, I think it was the Apollo's flight computer um, that still used core memory, right? In 1989, we launched a satellite whose memory was ferrite rings on a hand-woven mesh of wire. Right. No, not integrated circuits. Right. And it had kilobytes of memory because of that. When commodity PCs at the time, you know, were moving into the megabyte range, you know, so, you know, and we we have very because the outcome of that is that a lot of legacy systems have very conservative CPUs on them. It's because they were designed 40 years ago or 30 years ago when we've flown them a bunch and we know they work. So why change it if you don't have to? If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Um, and when you're investing, you know, a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars or whatever you did in that launch, you, you really want to make sure it's going to work the first time. So 
um, that space heritage and the, the results on that, you know, a 10 year old satellite doesn't have a 10 year old computer on it. It probably has a 30 or 40 year old computer on it. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially if it's the world. government. Yeah. It, but it's not the government. That's true for commercial space as well. Yeah. Right. It's, it's just the way things were done because of the concerns about reliability. Um, so, um, you know, and that gets all sorts of other interesting co- uh, topics like the cost spiral, right? So you spent $100 million in the satellites. So you might as well spend $20 million more on it to make it more reliable. Well, now you spent $120 million. So you ought to spend another $5 million to make it more reliable, you know, <laughs> and so on until you, you, its cost just keeps going up, um, you know, asymptotically. But still, uh, you can, you know, significantly spend more than you meant to because you ju- you're justified by what you already spent. It's almost like the the fallacy of sunk costs. That's um, yes, yes. I was going to um, say sunk costs. It's sort of like, but, uh, uh, but you know, we we've broken away from that in new space, right? You know, new space satellites in Leo, especially when you're inside the magnetosphere, they just tend to be run with like whatever's current off the shelf commodity hardware. So you have a lot more capabilities. Um, but in terms of upgrading old satellites, we're not going to be able to put. Um, as interesting protocols on those, even if the operators are, are have an appetite to do it, but we can still do something. We can still provide new interesting capabilities, um, even if we can't provide sort of the richest and, and most flexible ones. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Cyber Contest. Thank you, Jonathan Moore, the Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak. I'm Christian White, and we'll be back again soon with another episode.